0: Thanks for listening to Matt McLaughlin History. Become a subscriber to receive exclusive bonus episodes, ad-free listening, early access to all episodes, and special member-only events. Click on the link in the show notes or visit patreon.com forward slash mmhistory. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. If you haven't ordered your copy of Peter Hart's new book, The Gallipoli Evacuation, now is the time to do it. The Gallipoli Evacuation was one of the most important chapters of the entire Gallipoli story, and this is the first book to explore it in detail. From dithering politicians in London to the winter storms, to the ingenious ruse that enabled the Allies to escape, such as the self-firing rifles and the silent periods, this book tells the whole gripping story of this life-and-death gamble. And Peter Hart really is the man to tell this story, with his wonderful writing style, his insightful accounts of the history, and most importantly, his use of quotes from veterans of the campaign. The story of the Gallipoli evacuation is really told in the words of the men who were there. The book is now available in softcover or ebook, and you can order it all over the world and pay in your local currency. So visit our website, livinghistorytv.com, to order your copy today. A Living History Production
1: This is the Living History Podcast,
0: broadcasting live across the airwaves. Hello and welcome to Living History. Today, something I'm really looking forward to. Our special guest is Richard Van Emden, who has written more than 20 books about the Great War. He probably knows more about it than just about anyone, but in particular, he has a great fondness. And over the years, he's spoken to a lot of veterans and collected a lot of stories, both in terms of speaking to veterans and also collecting their photos and documents, etc. So I thought it was a great opportunity to get him on the program to talk all about his experience of, of speaking to veterans and, and telling their stories. So, Richard, thank you very much for joining us on Living History. My pleasure, Matt. For those of us who who don't know your work as intimately as we probably should, why don't you tell us a little bit about uh, just the work you've done over the years? I mean, how did you first get into this 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 passionate obsession with the First World War? Uh, well, I've wondered that myself actually, because it
1: goes back such a long way. I'm not entirely sure. Um, I think I probably saw a programme on TV about the Great War and realised I knew absolutely nothing about it. My next memory is my mother sort of saying, what do you want for Christmas? And and I said, this was in Christmas about 1984. And I said, oh, I don't know, just get me a book on the Great War, you know, so I know nothing about it. And she got me Goodbye to All That by Robert Graves. And uh, the moment I read that book, I was hooked. I absolutely knew this was my passion. And um, I immediately sort of, uh, sort of gemmed up on medal ribbons of Great War veterans, went straight down to the Chelsea pensioners um, home in, in London in Chelsea and started wandering around looking for men with the medal ribbons of the Great War. And I started interviewing them. And that in itself became its, the, the passion for me. I wanted to speak to the men who were there.
0: I can't tell you how jealous I am of that, Richard, because I I have this feeling that I was born 20 years too late. And in the whole time I've been obsessed with the First World War, I only ever got to speak to one Great War veteran. And and that was a, a rare privilege in itself. But how many veterans do you think you spoke to over the years?
1: I interviewed um, just over two hundred and seventy. You know, on the old-fashioned kind of tape cassette recorders, most most of them appear on the on on that machine. Uh, I started interviewing them from nineteen eighty-five onwards. So uh, I I set myself, weirdly enough, I did set myself a target when I started interviewing. I said I want to meet two hundred and fifty Great War veterans. So um, because I managed to get into TV and because I started working on documentaries, um, that target probably would have been inaccessible. Uh, uh, but but for the fact that I started working on documentaries about the Great War and so I was able to tour the United Kingdom. I even I came to Australia on a couple of occasions to interview British veterans out um, at one out just outside um, Sydney, actually, in our board. Um, a great, great Scottish veteran out there. So I managed to travel a little bit of the world and, and of course, right across the UK. Whenever I found a veteran, I was uh, invariably in a car and off to see them.
0: Whenever I've spoken to veterans, um, obviously mostly given uh, the, my age, that they've been Second World War veterans. But I found that as they get older, especially as they get into that sort of in their 90s, they seem to open up a lot more than they may have done earlier in life because perhaps they feel that they've got to tell these stories before they're gone or they might be the last member of their unit left. How did you find it speaking to these veterans in the 1980s? Were they, were they forthcoming? Were they happy to speak to you about it? Or was it a bit of a challenge to get them to open up?
1: Uh, no, exactly as you found it, Matt. Um, I was very fortunate. I had veterans who said to me, quite honestly, if you'd come to see me 20 years Ago, as in, you know, say I met them in 1995, say 1975, they said we wouldn't, I wouldn't have spoken about it. Um, but they were, so many of them were aware of the fact they were going to take these stories to the grave. Um, they didn't want, some of them didn't want to talk to their families about it because of the emotional turmoil and uh, they weren't always sure exactly what they were going to say. And so having a stranger come into their house. Um, it was like people being honest on a on a train, you know, and people just sort of open up, or someone think they're never going to see again. Uh, it's the same sort of principle. They 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 chatted to me. And I, I mean, I had veterans who doctored what they said so they wouldn't entirely open up. You could see that there were avenues they didn't really want to go down. But I only ever had. One real blank blank refusal um, out of 270 plus. So um, exactly as you found it, Matt, They were, they wanted to talk at the
0: end. Did you find, Richard, that your discussions with them enhanced your understanding of the war or did it simply confirm things that you already suspected about what went on?
1: Oh, God, it enhanced it enormously. I mean, to be honest, I'm embarrassed by some of my early cassette tapes because, of course, I was almost using these people as a kind of petri dish, you know, trying to sort of get an idea of of, of the Great War itself. So sometimes I went with utter ignorance of of, of certain stories and, um, you know, I was reading all that I could, but when you're in 1920, you're just starting to get interested in the Great War. It was the veterans themselves who gave me the parameters of the story. Um, and so... You know I'm aware I'm aware of some of my early cassettes where the veteran says something really significant and I just don't get it. It, it just washes over me. Um, I don't see the, the historical significance. I'm thinking of one particular veteran in fact, whose brother um, was um, he was called Genoa and his brother was murdered in Brandenburg POW camp. And this actually was an incredibly famous story in the Great War. of, of uh, and it, There's a government white paper about it. Uh, it caused a huge storm at the time. And this was this guy's brother. And I remember thinking, yeah, 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 that's your brother, but I want to hear your story of the Somme. You know, tell me about your... And so I kind of brushed, I said, oh, let's move on. You know, let's talk about the Somme, your experiences. And I missed what was a, 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 an extraordinary story in itself. I just couldn't see it. And so... Um, you know the veterans gave me so so much and it was often it wasn't just the kind of you know we're always aware of the fact that of you know a soldier in a trench only sees 200 yards either side of him so for me it wasn't so much about the battles and about the the fighting it was the little inconsequential details that i used to love the little stories that that you wouldn't pick up unless you spoke to a veteran. It wasn't recorded in the history books. And so those are the sort of stories that I love more, if anything, than, than, than you know, a, a soldier's perspective on on the Somme, when in fact, in reality, he could only see so much.
0: Well, a lot of your books that you've written focus on the, the experience of individuals. Where do you see that the, the importance of oral history comes into our collective memory of the Great War?
1: Well, I mean, it, it, it's it's critically important to to listen to these guys, and this that's not to say they don't have false memories. Um, you know, I had a couple of veterans who 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 well, one was an, a, purported to be a Great War nurse, another exaggerated his his military career to the extent, unfortunately for him, his, his service record survived, and I could see that what he was telling me wasn't correct. So you know let, you know and also I was talking to veterans at, right towards the end of their lives I mean I've got interviews with veterans who are 105 106 years old and of course you get problems with memory but it's as I say for me it's the small stories that really matter the things that would have gone to the grave and which we simply wouldn't be aware of and there are a thousand and one details like that that I have on 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 cassette which um which just paint a picture of the war—a very different picture of the war to those that you read in history books—and that's what the veterans give you. I'm not asking them for, you know, their their, their views particularly on Douglas Haig. I'm not asking for their synopsis of the Battle of the Somme. I want those tiny, tiny details that will go with them to the grave unless they tell me. And I I've so many of those, and that just paints, as I say, an entirely new picture of the Great War.
0: Someone that we both know quite well, Peter Hart, who we've had on the programme before, talking about his illustrious career interviewing veterans as part of the Imperial War Museum. He says the same thing that you've you've just said there, that the the what it adds to the historic record because they tell you things that they wouldn't have put in a letter home or that they wouldn't even have written down in a diary. It only comes out when you when you press them for the details that sometimes they think are inconsequential. Did did you find the same thing? Did you find that 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 asking them questions about the small facets of their life painted a much bigger picture of, of your understanding of the Great War?
1: It did. It did. And it also, uh, it, I mean, I, with Pete, Peter and I slightly disagreed, actually. Um, he may be unaware of the disagreement, but he was quite down on, on, on some of the veterans right at the end of their lives. But I think he was looking at them in terms of, Broader historical accuracy, could they give that to me? And and I think he felt that they they possibly couldn't. At the end, um, I, and I in a sense I agree with him. But what I was after were those were those stories. And I'm thinking about one chap called Cecil Withers, um, who was 105, I think, when I interviewed him. And he'd never really spoken about his war. So in a sense, he was really, really interesting because what he said was fresh. You know, occasionally with veterans, you knew they'd told their story a thousand times over and it came across like that. With him, it wasn't. And, and, and it was. there were little moments when you still saw what the war meant to people like that. And there was one where he said that it, it was at Arras in 1917 and the Germans had done a counterattack and been, and been badly cut up. And he said, I was standing in a trench and I could hear crying and screaming out in no man's land and I could hear this German soldier going, Mother, 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 or Mutter, 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 out in no man's land. And this corporal walked past and he just said, I don't know why he's cried for her, he'll never see her again, you know. And he just said those painful words really, really cut me, cut me to the core. And to see him say that and to see what it meant to him, you know, this is ninety years after the events. That he felt that that comradeship with the dying German in No Man's Land. And this this this, you know, Hard and Lance Corporate made this comment. And it, it just again, it just painted that picture of what it was like to be in the midst of suffering, really intense suffering, suffering I can never ever appreciate, which tells me something about about these men's lives and about what they went through. And again, I didn't need him to tell me the story of the Battle of Arras or even his battalion's uh, particular, you know, uh, 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 service there. But what I wanted was those sort of details. And that told me so much about, about how these veterans suppressed the anxieties and the emotions and the, and the and the pain of what they saw for so, so long. So every single story you got, it didn't really matter who it came from. You know, occasionally you've got details. I, mean, I remember interviewing one veteran who was, again, it was 107 or something. And he didn't really, there wasn't really a lot there. And he t- t- spoke about, he was in the artillery and he spoke about a horse that had got trapped in the mud. And he was whipping this horse, trying to get it to rise. And it was just the kind of, he didn't want to hurt it. He didn't. He desperately needed this horse to get up out of the mud. The horse was exhausted. And this was one story of very, very few that he still had. But you, again, you could see the anxiety. You could see the misery of the occasion. And to me, that was a really astonishing story, given that there was so little else that he could tell me about. But this this story had lodged with him all his life and it was so vivid the way he told it
0: the last time I spoke to you Richard we were doing the book launch for Peter Hart's Gallipoli book and you mentioned in a discussion with Peter a rather freewheeling discussion with Peter about you were talking about veterans and you mentioned there was a veteran at one stage who in telling you his story he began to relive the experience and for a moment he was actually there can you recall that story tell us a little bit more about that um,
1: I think his name was White, his surname was White, um, and he was uh, in the King's Royal Rifle Corps, and oh gosh, um, he was on, it was on the Somme, and he just, he was a slightly strange individual. Um, when I met him, he was very hung up on this treatment after the war, he felt he'd been really badly treated, as a lot of veterans did, and I, I appreciate that. But when we started talking about the war, he, he was blind, so he was kind of reliving the story. I mean, um, uh, Peter had a friend like that, didn't he? A Gallipoli veteran who he said he could, who was blind, that he could sort of relive the story behind his eyes. And this veteran did a very, very similar thing. And as he told me about one incident of going over the top and getting into the German trenches, he started to lose it. He started to to, to be there. So he started shouting as if other men were with him. You know, like, get down! get No, no, no! Over there! Over there! Behind you! Behind you! Behind! You, behind you, get there! And, and suddenly, it was the only time it ever happened to me. I was in a room with a man who was back in the trenches, really, absolutely back in the trenches. And he was fighting. It was hand-to-hand. And he completely... He didn't lose it. I mean, he didn't sort of fly out the chair or anything, but he was there. He was absolutely there. And I remember being mesmerised by that. It's on a, a cassette somewhere. The only issue is it's so... I'm so scared to play these cassettes because I just think the cassette was going to chew them up. So whether I'll ever listen to this story again, I don't know. But I remember thinking this is – I think this will probably be a unique moment for me in terms of being back, actually being in, on the Somme with a veteran, albeit 80 years after the events happened.
0: That's absolutely extraordinary. I, I have chills as you're telling that story because it is time travel, isn't it? That is the the only opportunity those of us who were born so many decades after the war would ever have to 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 even get a hint of what it was like. Even as you're just telling that story, it's something that I'm thinking about now. I'm thinking, yeah, if you were in a platoon and charged trenches, you would be shouting out to your mates. You would be shouting, look out over there. Let's move in this direction. Um, it's, exactly. it's just elements, elements that we otherwise would not get by reading a dry old history book.
1: Yeah, and, and so many of these veterans locked these stories away. And I'm thinking of it, my sister for a time worked in a nursing home and uh, she call- <laughs> felt she, she called me after it happened, but she, she rang up and she said, Oh, we've just lost a gentleman in the home today. Uh, he was well in, in the late nineties or something. He'd been in there. Uh, he'd been in this home since the great war. And uh, he'd said nothing. He'd been almost mute. And, um, had very little interaction with anybody. And then my sister suddenly said, uh, one day he just started screaming and shouting again, back in the trenches. They were all astonished by this, and uh, as if he was there. And the next day he died. And she said, I realise now it was just a release. It was all been bottled up for all these years. And suddenly it all came out, and it can't have been a coincidence, she said, that, that he died the following day. I mean, you know... I, I wish he'd called me in a sense because it was a historical moment in, in its own way. I mean, it, it sounds heartless, but, you know, it, it, it gives you a bridge into the Great War, which is so, so incredibly rare. And this man was just letting go. He was letting it all out before he then passed away. And and I feel, I feel very much for him. And there were so, I mean, there are so many veterans I felt deeply deeply for because and in fact one of my books i i dedicated to a veteran i never actually met although i sat within 10 yards of him and this was in a home just outside newcastle and i used to go and visit this veteran who'd been in the uh, again another one from the um oh the rifle brigade and he'd been at hooge in the flame assault in 1915 uh, the famous one and and uh, and I said to him, oh, "Are there any other veterans in this home?" And he said, "Well, yes. There's a man called Matthew. He's in a home just down this corridor there." And I, and he said, "But I I don't advise you go and see him. He's blind. He's incontinent. He's he's just in a bed all the time." So I said, "Look, I, of course I'll respect that." And then one day I visited um, uh, James, this veteran, and and I said, uh, and he said, "Oh, uh, Matthew died." And I said, "Oh, I'm really sorry to hear that." And on the way out, I spoke to one of the nurses and I said, I, I hear Matthew died. And she said, yes, you know, he was—he he needed to go. And she said, and you know, the amazing thing was, was when James, who was himself crippled by arthritis, and he was in his mid 90s at the time, she said, we watched him. Without any, he, didn't, he wasn't whether anyone was watching us, watching him. And he, he got up out of his chair and pushed his Zimmer frame down the corridor. And we went out, we weren't sure what he was doing. And he walked up to the Ma- Matthew's door and he stood there and he stood erect and he saluted. And then he turned around and hobbled back into his chair again, and didn't say anything more. And she said he was unaware that we were watching him. And she said, it was so, so moving. So one of my books I dedicated to Matthew and I said to Matthew, whoever he was, and uh, I'll never know, we'll never know who who that veteran was. But he died that lonely death in an old people's home in, what, probably about nineteen eighty eight, eighty nine? And I still remember him, even though, as I say, he's one veteran that I never met.
0: It's extraordinary the work you do, Richard, because these links with these men, you know, who seventy five years after these traumatic events in their life are still reliving it. It's still such an important part of them. Isn't that just the, the most fascinating thing about speaking to veterans that this was a for most of them, it was a small period of their life, and they went on to do other and you know greater things with their life, but it always stayed with them in such a such a strong way. Did you always find that when you spoke to veterans that even though this was so long ago, it was a very important part of their of their story? It
1: makes me laugh actually because occasionally you had veterans who would get grumpy about it there, so I was, you know, I was only in France for six months, only six months, I was only in France for six months and all they w- want to talk about is my Great War service. They're not interested in anything else I, want, I, I, I ever did. And then you would hear somebody say, oh, tell me about, uh, you know, your life as a, I don't know, a gardener or something like that. And, and invariably the veteran himself would get back to the war.
0: <laughs> so Sometimes they kind
1: of were slightly annoyed they weren't being talked about it. But if they didn't talk about it, that's exactly what they went to. So um, even Harry, Harry Patch, I, mean, I don't know if you're aware of him in Australia, but he was the, Britain's last Great War veteran, um, last one to serve in the trenches. And he died aged 111 in 2009. And um and he used to say that you know I was only in France three months, you know, or in Belgium actually for three months, you know. But that's what, all they want to talk about. And so I said, well, let's write your story. So I, I wrote his biography, uh, The Last Bite in Tommy, because he wanted to tell people about the rest of his life. But invariably, you know, even though we wrote about his Victorian childhood and and his Edwardian upbringing and things like that, and it's absolutely fascinating. The Great War was what. Everyone went back to, and in the end, it was it was a nice story to write because I knew him for ridiculously for eleven years, from the age of 100 to 111. And so, for me, I was fascinated to see something other than the Great War to talk to him other you know, to see how the Great War figured in his whole life. And actually, it was it was something that that had been a monkey on his back for a uh, for for the best part of 90 years. He'd, well, 80 years, he'd never spoken about it to anybody. And I just happened to be the first person to rock up and say, tell me about the Great War. And he, interestingly enough, that first interview, he, I drove all the way down to, down to Wells, which from London is, is probably about a three-hour drive. It's quite a long way. And and he said, and very happy, when he talked to me about the great, great War, and he told me his entire story in five minutes. And he just said, well, I think that's it. I think that's everything I can tell you. And I could see that it was there. I could see there was so much more, but he didn't know how to get it out because he knew he would get emotional about it. And that started what was turned out to be a great decade-plus-long friendship because... I was there at the start, I was able to tease that out of him. But equally, we built such a great friendship that I said, look, after a while, I said, we don't need to talk about the Great War anymore, Harry, we can look at the rest of your life, and we can do this book together. And so that in a, in a way was really, really special to have that bond, that bond of friendship. And in fact, my son, who's now 13, um, his uh, his third name is Harry, and Harry's honour. So um, you can see how much that meant to me.
0: That's absolutely wonderful. I mean, that's obviously a, a wonderful connection you had with harry patch what are some of the other veterans uh, who are some of the other veterans that you felt that connection with that you 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 remember most all these years later
1: well on on armistice day um you know or any other occasion where we, we vet, remember the great war i think of obviously of those veterans who have died i think about those veterans those soldiers who died who um, veterans told me about so I remember some of the names and then I think about the veterans themselves and invariably I go back to sort of five, my five, I mean it's a horrible to say favourite veterans but in a sense they were and uh, and perhaps right at the top of that list uh, was a chap called Ben Clouting who was um, six, 15 years old when he joined the 4th Royal Irish Dragoon Guards and um, went to France in August 1914 aged 16 and took part in the very first shot of the great war he was there at uh, just outside mons on the 22nd of august 1914 and took part in this this uh, altercation with the germans at a, a village called castoe and extraordinarily uh, that was actually a story that fascinated me um i used to i was obsessed by the first shot and i used to go and read books about it and i used to study and, You know, I don't know why, but it was it just got me that very, very first contact with the enemy. And when I discovered the world's last survivor lived two miles from my house, I mean, it just felt like this is fate. This has got to be. And I rang him up and I, I, funny enough, I came across him in an old newspaper cutting about the old contemptibles, you know, the, 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 the name given to the old regular army. And, uh, and about their organisation closing down in the mid-1970s. And the, the article started, you know, Ben Clouting, chairman of the Old Contemptible Association of Reading, says there aren't enough of us left, blah blah, blah. and we're closing it down. And it, uh, and, and it said, Ben Clouting, who saw the first shot of the Great War? And I remember just being mesmerised. And there were f- the five names of the last five veterans, and um, I went to the register of electors, and four of them were missing, and there was one left, Ben Clouting. And I rang him up and this incredibly strong, youthful voice picked up the phone and I said, oh, is that Ben Clouting? Yes. I thought, oh, this is his son. This is definitely his son. And I said, I'm looking for a Great, a great War veteran. And he said, yep, that was me. He said, yes, I'm you know, right there, right the way through the whole thing. And indeed he did. He went through 14 to 19, wounded twice, um, went through virtually every engagement. And um, and so I went to there. I said, can I come and see you? And he said, "Yep." Yeah. again, for two years until he sadly died of cancer. Um, We, I went to see him every single Sunday. And then in May 1990, shortly before he died, I had the incredible honour of going to Belgium with him and going back to the location, to the actual site where that first shot took place. And in fact, if you follow me on Twitter, I posted two clips of him talking on the site, on the location of where that first shot took place, and that was extraordinary. And he'd never been back, I mean, that's the first time, well, he'd been back in 1939 for the opening of a memorial there, but they hadn't actually gone to where the first shot took place. So this was the first time he'd been back since August the 22nd, 1914. So he is a great, for me, again, okay, my son, I mentioned his third name is Harry. His first name is Benjamin, after Ben Clouting. Um, and there were other veterans too, Vic Cole, another one, a, a veteran who lived in Reading, who was just so funny, so erudite about the Great War. Um, I mean, he, got, uh, he, he got drunk on many occasions, got busted from Lance Corporal down to, Corporal, uh, down to private again on, on more than one occasion. In fact, one time he said, he, I told him I met a veteran of the 1st Battalion of the Royal West Kent Regiment, which uh, Vic had been transferred to. And Vic said, oh, really? He was in my battalion. He said, he was in Italy. I said, yes, he was in Italy in I said, or oh, 18. And he said, right, right, right. R- tr- ask him if he remembers this. Ask him if he remembers a soldier being brought out in front of the entire battalion and having his lance corporal stripe ripped off him. He said, I'm sure he'll remember that because that was me. <laughs> <laughs> he had no kind of. He had no credit. There There's nothing that he would hide under a bushel or, or not tell you about, which again was brilliant because he would tell you stuff that other veterans would be very guarded. I mean, um, there was one veteran um, who was in the, one of the London regiments and he told me, he was actually went to the occupation of Cologne after the Great War, which is, again is a big interest of mine. And uh, and he was telling me about his Great War He's he was telling me about the occupation of Cologne and his wife was there and that was always the issue. Don't have family members there because it inhibits them. There are things they want to tell you they won't tell you because their wife is sitting there. And at one point, his wife said, I'm just going to make a cup of tea. Would you like one? And uh, I said, oh, yes, please. And she went off into the kitchen and she said, right, VD in Cologne, quickly. And he just told me this story, really gory detail about VD in Cologne. And as soon as his wife walked back in, he stopped, you know, and I knew that was the only moment I was going to get that story. Which brings me, actually, I'm rabbiting on here, but there is another story, which absolutely incredible story of another veteran I met called Walter Popple of the 8th King's Own Yorkshire Light Infantry. He went over the top on the 1st of July, 1916, and was wounded very close to the German trenches. And his story was remarkable. He should have died. In fact, the, he, a German spotted him lying there wounded and shot at him and hit hit his boot, took the, took the heel off his boot off, and, and Walter said, I knew I was going to die. So I pushed myself up with my one. He'd been shot through the shoulder, so I pushed myself up on with my left with my right arm, looked straight at the German so he could finish me off. I didn't want to be picked off bit by bit. And the German aimed straight at my head. The bullet hit my hit my helmet, ripped my helmet off, but but ricocheted upwards. I then collapsed and realized, of course, the German would have thought he'd killed me. My helmet was flew off into the air. I lay there for three nights, three days and um, four nights before I crawled back to the British lines. But he was so, so emotional. This story, he said, I've, I've, I've written it down, I can't tell you. So he hadn't told me the story at first. He said, I've written it down, I can't tell you it, I'll get it for you. But he couldn't, from my, my luck was that he couldn't find it. And he came back. So he eventually told me this story of of being there on the 1st of July and what happened to him. It was so, so, so traumatic. And I remember watching him. He was crying as he was telling me. And I was watching these children walking home from school, walking past the living room as he was telling me this, thinking they have no idea what's going on in this room right now. And the story, he finished the story. And again, he said, like like a cup of tea. I think he needed a cup of tea. I said, yes, please. And he said, well, I'll go get it. Here's the bullet. So this is the bullet that had been taken out of his shoulder, the second intercostal space. I always remember him telling me that. And he gave me the bullet. And I'm sitting there on this old settee, and he goes off into the kitchen. Drop the bullet, and the bullet goes down the back of the sofa. <laughs> and it's one of these plunging, these old plunging sofas, which meant that every time I put my, hand, my hand, arm down the back of the sofa, I could touch the bullet. And as soon as I kind of opened the aperture to pick it, the bullet dropped further and further down the back of the sofa. And I could hear him putting biscuits on the teas made putting the tea <laughs> and I was desperate had my arm right up to my elbow, in will be back further up to my armpit. As literally as he walked back into the room, I got my hand onto the bullet, pulled it out the back of the sofa with sort of, uh, sort of spring grazes all over my arms, you know, with the springs are dug in. He was most bemused. hello I was holding his bullet. And that was just one of those little moments where I thought, my God, he's had this bullet since it was put there by a German. And I'm going to lose it down the back of a sofa. But um, so there was often, you know, there's often great moments of humour and lovely moments of contact with these veterans. You know, whether situations like that or others, you know, I could honestly I could rabbit it on for hours, as you you could tell. But they they were three, those three veterans are three of my favourite ones, I have to say.
0: As you're telling those stories Richard it just makes me um just realize what a privilege it is. I mean I've had the privilege as well of speaking to veterans and I remember at one time I was in Vietnam with a bunch of Australian Vietnam veterans and we were sitting around at the end of the day having a beer and it was just them and me it was about six veterans and me and they started telling each other the stories that I knew they hadn't wow. even shared with their family and I just said to myself Matt don't speak <laughs> you know just just soak this in and it, it's just such a rare privilege that I've always found that veterans, if they think you understand, that's enough for them to open up to you. you. You don't have to have been there. You don't have to have served beside them. But if they if they comprehend that you understand the significance of what they went through and why it's important, that they they open up to you. Did did you find that in your experience of interviewing veterans?
1: Yes, yes, absolutely. It, sensitivity was key. Um, if you went blundering in with, uh, so did you lose your best mate? You know, they were going to absolutely close up. They weren't going to tell you anything. I remember one veteran, again, an old contemptible, who, um, Basil Farah, uh, saying to me he'd been interviewed for television um, by uh, sort of, you know, he was from Nottingham, so probably Midlands TV or something. And he said, this lady was so insensitive because she basically opened up with, tell me your worst Great War story. You know, the one that that makes you kind of wake up sweating at night because she wanted that easy story for her programme. If I can just go in, get that brilliant story. I don't need to bother about anything else. And he basically told her nothing. And he was so angry about it. He was so angry at the way that she just kind of thrown herself into this and just said oh okay you know tell me what you need to tell me just for my peace so of course he told her nothing absolutely nothing and um and that was that was it if you had to make them you didn't have to make as you say you didn't have to be an expert you didn't have to make them feel that you knew an awful lot about the subject And my god some of the early interviews i did i knew nothing what they had to feel was that you cared the fact that you wanted to hear their stories but you would let them lead the way. You would let them tell tell the stories as they wanted to tell them. And you weren't just going to kind of batter them with, you know, tell me your worst nightmare. Tell me your the name of your best friend who was killed. And, you know, those sort of utterly insensitive questions, which I suspect some people on occasions ask, and which I, I desperately tried to avoid. There, there were times, you know, there were times when I probably... Asked questions that maybe I should have left for another time, or weren't at the right, weren't apposite at that particular moment. But but I always felt that they understood that I really wanted to know, and I I, it it meant such a lot to me as it did to them. And so that's I suspect one of the reasons why they were willing to talk to me, and why I, I had you know as I say only one real blank refusal.
0: Were there veterans that you were really looking forward to speaking to that you missed out on speaking to over the years?
1: Um, oh, absolutely. Uh, um, I mean, there was one we were going to film who I'd interviewed on two or three occasions, and we said, I said, we must film this guy. He's absolutely extraordinary. Again, Del- Delville on the Somme was, it was a big story for him. And we were literally, he said, I'm going to do this interview and I'm never then going to talk about the Great War again. This is it. This is my final interview. And he'd never been co- caught on camera before. And we were driving up to uh, Hexham outside Newcastle in the north of England. And um, we got a call saying he died in the night. And so that was one where, although I'd met him, although I'd interviewed i have got tape recordings with him, we needed him on camera because his story was so, so good. There were other times when I remember a chap called Billingham, I think his surname was, who wrote to me, um, I'd sent out some feelers, various veterans, and he wrote back and said, I'd delighted to speak to you. Come and see me anytime. I was at Beaumont Hamill in November 1916. Uh, I can tell you all about that. And I just left it, I, and not for very long, you know, two or three weeks, maybe a month. And then I rang him up and I said, well, I must go and see him this weekend. I rang him up and the phone rang and rang and rang. And I thought, oh, he's obviously gone out or he's asleep. And I kept ringing and, and then, then one, you know, two weeks later, the line went dead and I realised that he died. And that was one I, if I'd gone to see him straight away, he was 103, I think, at the time. He would have been a great interview. He was very happy to talk. I still got the letter but I never met him. And there are veterans like that that I look back and think, oh, why didn't I just go? Why did I leave it two weekends or three weekends? I could have gone. And so those are my biggest regrets. But equally, there are big regrets where questions that I didn't ask that now on reflection, I think would have elicited all sorts of new stories. Um, But also, you know, I regret, I went to the Somme. In fact, 2019 was the first year I haven't been to the Somme since 1985, I've been every single year. And so when I interviewed some veterans, you know, I had a sort of sense of where they were and of what, of what of the locations. But that wasn't true of the Somme. Oh, sorry, of Gallipoli. And I interviewed probably, oh, I don't know, I probably interviewed over 20, 25 Gallipoli veterans over the years, all before I went with Peter Hart to Gallipoli. And I wrote a book with uh, a great friend of mine, Stephen Chambers, on Gallipoli. Uh, it was some amazing using original soldiers photographs. And I said, before I write this book, I have to go to Gallipoli. I have to go to these locations. So I went twice with Peter Hart and wonderful, wonderful tours. Um, but I realised then how much I missed when I spoke to the Gallipoli veterans, having not been at that time to Gallipoli, how much I missed their story because I didn't really appreciate the terrain and the locations that they were talking about and that again is a big regret I should have gone a lot earlier
0: you mentioned photos Richard and I know that's another passion of yours not just having spoken to these veterans but also collecting their photographs that they took uh, while they were over there just tell us a little bit that, about that and, and the importance of the the, the photographic record to you
1: yeah, I mean, <clears throat> the soldier's camera, uh, uh, the one they, the ubiquitous camera on the Western Front was called Vest Pocket Kodak. And this was this kind of cheap and easy camera to take if you were going to go to the Western Front and take a camera with you. Uh, the British authorities, um, uh, the, the army was uh, w- were very sceptical about the use of these cameras and banned them just actually a couple of days before Christmas 1914. They were aware of the fact that officers were loading, aiming and shooting their cameras as opposed to their uh, their um, revolvers and uh, <clears throat> and also saw privately taken photographs appearing in the British press and of course they wanted control of that so cameras were banned and so um, you get for the number of men who were on the Western Front very very few cameras but given there were you know at any one time by 1916 two million men who were over that you're going to have some who ignored the laws and kept cameras with them and it's their story it's the story of the great war told through their cameras which i find absolutely fascinating they're different from those images taken by the official photographer not least because the official photographer didn't work, didn't arrive on the western front until january 1916 so any pictures you see of the western front pre that are almost invariably taken by soldiers on their own cameras And it's the stories that they take, the fact that they're so relaxed with one another. And with the official photographer, you can see them on occasions they tense up, you know, it's a posed picture. Um, But also, you know, when they put these out pictures in their albums, these really personal images, they would often say, this is Bill, this is Bob, this is phil this is you know this person died on the somme at this particular date and so you get a kind of window on their world and there's one incredible i wrote a book on the somme using these private photographs and there's a um, an out al- there's a picture i took from an album of a man who was in the royal garrison artillery and there's a wonderful wonderful picture of him in, in no man's land well no, no, no sorry just behind the british front line and and he's standing, he's standing there with his brother. Now, the extraordinary thing about that is his brother had emigrated to Australia before the Great War, and they just happened to meet in the middle of the Somme battlefield. His brother had joined the Australian forces, were walking across, and he just went, my God, it's you. And so because he had his camera with him, he got someone to take a photograph of them both together in the middle of the Somme. Wonderful, wonderful photograph, and they, after a hug and a chat, they parted company, they never met again, both survived the Great War, but his brother went back to australia he had no he had no financial means to go and see his brother, and obviously perhaps the other way round too, so he never met again. The last time they may met was in the middle of the song, so there are photographs that really means so much. So if they were taken by the fish, we just just got what's two men together. It's the backstory that means such a lot. And he's got another picture in his album. uh, And it's, again, it's of no great consequence, this particular image. It's of a a gun battery uh, in the snow in the winter of 1617. And... um, uh, and, you can, and it's actually quite badly. It's not actually well taken. It's obviously freezing cold. So his hands have been you know, a bit sort of sticky. And so he's shaking the camera slightly. But the inscription says six hours after this photograph was taken, this battery took a direct hit and these men died. Again, suddenly a picture that you would pass over, would think nothing of, suddenly becomes incredibly, incredibly historically historically significant and so, so moving. And it's these images that I just am so passionate about because it's, it's like having a window on these men's war. It's the pictures they took were the pictures that mattered to them. And um, and sometimes, I mean, I've got I've got a couple of albums, or no, I've got more than that, where one image is missing, and you can see the notation underneath, and you realise that they put this album together, and before they've died, they felt that picture is too personal to pass on. And there's one album where it says, uh, "Stretcher bearer coming down with dying man, passing me with with a dying man." Um, And he probably felt guilty about the fact he'd taken his camera out and photographed this man on a stretcher just before he died. Whether he knew him or not, I don't know. But he'd obviously put that in the album and then decided at whatever time to take that picture out and destroy it. And so you get these little gaps occasionally, albums, which you realise these pictures meant so much to these veterans, they weren't going to pass them on for future generations. I understand why. But as I say, it's this window on this soldier's world that fascinates me. So I pursue these albums everywhere I can get them. In fact, I just, um, I've just i just bought one. It's a, by an Australian infantry officer, I think. Um, it's Unfortunately, he names the places, he names the locations, but he doesn't name his battalion or he doesn't say who he is. So um, it's a great album. Lots of pictures around Gerdicure on the Somme um pictures up at Ypres so I may be able to pin down the battalion if I do some research just by the locations but some lovely lovely pictures of Australians in their slouch hats and um standing in front of Albert Basilica of course uh that famous symbol of the song so um yeah I I as you say I'm rabbiting on again I absolutely adore the soldier's private image
0: that's why we have you on here, Richard. It's not rabbiting on at all, I'm sure. I'm sure I speak for everyone listening when I say that uh, it's, it's just a wonderful insight into, uh, you know, really you know, something that we've lost now. And, and, and I'm very grateful for the work you've done preserving these memories because if people like you and Peter Hart and, and other diligent souls, Paul Reed is another one who spoke to lots of veterans. If you hadn't taken their stories down, they'd probably be lost to us forever. So just thank you for taking the time. If people want to find more about what you're doing, what's the, what's the latest project you're working on?
1: Um, well, I, I, unfortunately, because of lockdown, my latest book is missing. The need for closure after the Great War, which is a story, a post-war story of a mother's search for her missing son. Um, uh, he was a RFC pilot who shot down uh, um, uh, um, uh, the pilot who was shot down in May 1918, and uh, uh, some wonderful, wonderful lessons from him. Plus, her search for his body because his body was missing for five years, and she she. Undertook took her own personal search to discover him. So uh, that's my latest book. That's the one that I've been, unfortunately, not being able to promote as much as I would like to because of lockdown. So um, I'm, I'm I'm doing that, but I'm also updating Boy Soldiers of the Great War, which was, again, a passion of mine, the story of the underage lads who went to the Western Front, updated with um, what I call my top 50 list of youngest boys on the, on the Western Front and at Gallipoli. So I've just found, I think I found my 53rd or 54th, Lad aged under 15 on the Western Front or Gallipoli. So um, these are boys who have to be aged 13 or 14, not in service, but actually in a theatre of war. And the youngest, I've got three lads who are aged 13 on the Western Front. I've got another, whatever, 50 who are aged 14 either on the Somme or at Gallipoli, a couple in Mesopotamia as well. So that's going to be a, that's what I'm doing at the moment, just updating that particular book, which has been an ongoing passion of mine for. 20 years now, and just the story of just you know, I always said quarter of a million underage lads enlisted in the Great War. Well, um, I can tell you now, it's more than that, absolutely more than that. Um, uh, the, all the stats I'm doing now shows that it's it's a higher figure. Exactly where I'll land, I'm not sure, but it's it's a most fascinating story.
0: It's just absolutely brilliant work you're doing, Richard. Um, thank you very much for your for your contribution to the historic record, and thank you for taking the time to come and talk to us about it. If you're listening to this and you want to keep up with what Richard Van Amden is doing, certainly follow him on Twitter and other social media channels because uh, it's just great work that you're doing. Richard, thank you so much for taking the time to speak to us about it.
1: Absolutely. My pleasure, Matt. Anytime.
0: Thanks for listening. Don't forget to subscribe and leave a review for the podcast and visit livinghistorytv.com for more great history content. Planning for your next trip?